Well, my name is Marty Scott. I work here in the college ministry. I oversee our small groups and our college missions. I've been doing that for about a year. If, uh, if you come to Anderson on Thursday nights during the year for growth groups, you've often seen me up there and you've probably seen my family, my kid, my wife. We come every Thursday over there. But if you don't come there, you don't know who I am because I kind of stay hidden. So I'm going to spend some time introducing myself. Uh, again, I'm Marty Scott. I interned here for three years between 06 and 09. Then I left here, went to DTS for four more years, graduated with my THM, and then I started back here in this position last spring. So I've been here for about a year. Uh, I have uh, a wife. I got married in 08. Oh, this cute family. We just got that picture taken. Uh, We got married my second year of the internship. Uh, We have been married six years. Our anniversary is coming up in two weeks, so we're excited about that. We have a two-year-old son named Andrew, and then we have a 16-day-old right there. 16 days. He was born uh, on the 13th of June, so the last few weeks have been a little bit crazy. Um, Lots of poopy diapers, lots of spitting up, lots of crying, but we're adjusting. Uh, Andrew loves running through the house, and he'll stop at Jonah and say, pet it, pet it. And he'll reach down and he'll pet his head and then just take off running again. So that's his favorite thing to do right now. Um, but overall, we're adjusting great and we're excited about this next chapter in our lives. But uh, instead of talking about that chapter, I want to take you back to chapter number one in mine and Andrea's marriage. Chapter number one was me asking her out on a date. So we, uh, I was, uh, my senior year, I was a growth groups leader and she was in growth groups and our groups would spend a lot of time together. And so through that time, we got to know each other. We became better friends. And at the end of our senior year, I decided to ask her to ring dance where, uh, every true Aggie romance blossoms. And we went to ring dance and had a great time and it took me an entire year to ask her out again. So, because of different circumstances, a year passed um, before I ever asked her out again. Uh, during that time, I, I grew to like her more and more. And finally, uh, after about a year in the spring of 07, I decided enough is enough. I'm asking this girl out. And so I decided, I set my mind to asking her out after growth groups one Tuesday night. Uh, and so I waited in the foyer until she was done uh, cleaning up, and I walked her out to her car, and when we got to the car, I looked at her and I said, Andrea, will you go on a date with me Friday night? And there it was. My heart was on a platter. Uh, she could either love and caress my heart by saying yes, or she could smash it to a bloody pulp <laughs> by saying no. And so I waited in anticipation for her answer. And I waited, and I waited, and she didn't say anything. I waited for what seemed like forever, and finally I realized she doesn't want to go on a date with me, but she doesn't, wanna, she doesn't want to crush my heart. And so I began to backpedal. I began to give her an out. And I said, you know, don't worry about it. It's all right, which it wasn't. But I said, it's all right. You know, like, it's, it's okay if we don't go on a date. And finally, she snapped out of it. And she said, Marty, I would love to go on a date with you Friday night. So fireworks went off somewhere, and I was ecstatic. So we made our plans. I told her I'd pick her up at 6. And I went home, and I celebrated my victory with my roommates. And um, we were pumped. And, and in the midst of our celebration, one of my roommates said, well, what are you going to do Friday night? And all of a sudden, all of the joy and the ecstasy <laughs> that I had been experiencing washed away, and it was replaced with fear and anxiety because I realized I had to blow this girl's mind, right? I had to win her over. I had liked her for a year. I couldn't mess it up. And so there was this fear that I might mess everything up 
and she wouldn't go on a second date with me. There was this pressure on me that I had to be awesome, right? I had to perform great so that she would be willing to go on a second and a third date with me. So I went to sleep that night and had a restless night of sleep. The next morning, I got up, and my best friend called me, and he said, hey, I just got off the phone with Andrea. I was calling her for some dating advice, and in the midst of our conversation, I asked her what she thought about the date Friday night, and she informed me that she's actually liked you since ring dance. So she's liked you for an entire year, and I told her that you've liked her for an entire year. So now, all of a sudden, everything changed, right? All of a sudden, we both liked each other. There was some security. There's a little bit of commitment there. Surely, she would go on a second and third date with me if she had liked me for that long, and she liked me for who I was. So I didn't have to perform. She liked this guy. All of a sudden, there was joy again. There was excitement. I was going to be able to relax on this first date. And that's exactly what we did. That conversation with my friend, knowing that little bit of information, changed everything in our dating relationship. And that security, that commitment is vital to any relationship. It's vital to marriage. Obviously, we're married now. And in our marriage, if there's not security, if there's not commitment there, then we're just going to live and walk in fear. We're going to feel like there's a pressure to perform. In our marriage, if I don't feel like there's security, then uh, if I say something that upsets her, I'm going to fear that she's just going to walk out, right? I'm going to fear that she's going to blow up every time I say something stupid and she's not going to come back. And I say things that are stupid. So I don't want to have to walk in fear of that. She might fear that if she doesn't cook the best dinner every night, that I might get upset and she might leave if there's not that security, if there's not that commitment. And so she would feel like she had to cook and she had to clean out of an obligation to please me, an obligation to make me love her. Just as it's vital to have this commitment, to have this security in a marriage, it's equally as important to have it in our relationship with God. We have to have security. We have to have commitment within our relationship with our Lord. If we don't, it's going to be the same thing as in our marriage. We'll feel like we have to serve him out of obligation. We have to give. We have to be in small groups out of an obligation. And that if we don't, maybe we're not Christians. If we don't do those things, are we really saved? We'll fear that every time that we sin, every time that we make a mistake, what if I just lost my salvation? Every time that I go too far with my boyfriend or my girlfriend, what if I just lost it all? And so there's a need for security and commitment. And in our faith, we call that security and we call that commitment eternal security. Eternal security is the doctrine that once you are saved, you're always saved. Once you enter into a relationship with God through trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life, that relationship can never be severed. It cannot go away. It's what we sang just now. Nothing can separate us. And so this morning, we're going to look at eternal security. We're going to read through Romans 8, 31 through 39 to see how Paul argues for eternal security. Before we do that, I want to back up in Romans and give you kind of an overview of what Paul's brought up throughout the book. See, uh, Romans 1 through 8 is probably the most detailed, extensive explanation of salvation there is in the Bible. We call this oftentimes the Romans road. Uh, it's, it's a way to trace the process of salvation through the book of Romans using verses and, and key topics. The first verse is Romans 3.23. So the first three 
chapters of Romans all talk about how fallen man is and our sin nature. And Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Next, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. So not only are we sinners, but the penalty for that sin is death. It's eternal separation from God. But then Paul goes into the rest of the book of, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul explains in chapters four through eight that because Christ's righteousness is placed on us when we believe in him, that we're free to have a relationship with God. We no longer have to pay that penalty for our death, penalty of death. And so after explaining all of that for eight chapters, he moves into verses 31 through 39, which we're gonna read now. To turn with me to 31. What then shall we say to these things? These things being the process of salvation that Paul has gone through for the first eight chapters. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who, who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Such a a great passage. In this passage, we're going to see three arguments that Paul gives for eternal security. And then we're going to talk through what this means for us. So the first argument is that God is for us. We read this in verses 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is for us. God is all-powerful. He is the creator. Nothing can go against him. And God has promised you salvation. If you turn back a few verses, uh, verses 29 through 30, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God has promised that he is going to justify you and that he is going to then glorify you. And if he made that promise, if he is for you in that way, then nothing can come against him and that promise. Nothing can come against you. So our first step in eternal security is to know that God is for you and God is all powerful and therefore nothing can come in between you and that promise that God's made. He is all powerful and there's nothing in the creation that can defeat him. Now the question that arises is, is how do I know that God is for me? How can, is there proof that God is for me? And Paul answers that in the next verse. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God, prove to me that you're for me. I gave you the most precious gift in the entire universe. The holy, perfect, righteous son was given for your sake. There is nothing more that can prove that I am for you. It reminds me of chapter two in mine and Andrea's uh, relationship. If chapter one was dating, chapter two would be our proposal. Uh, After 11 months of dating, I decided that I wanted to marry Andrea. And so uh, I began to work with a jeweler to design a ring. And uh, I took pictures off the internet and we took different pieces of each picture and designed the most beautiful ring in the world. And I saved up money for years, it seemed like, uh, to be able to pay for this ring. And finally the day came that I decided I was gonna propose. And so I took her to Bryson Park, which is right down the street, and I'd placed letters throughout the park. And so we walked from letter to letter And at each letter, I would read through the letter. She would cry some, and then we would move. (laughs) Then we would move to the next letter, and we would read that one. She would cry, and we'd move to the next one. And as we moved through the letters, the anticipation was building, and we were getting more and more excited. And we finally got to the last letter, and I read it to her, and I proposed. I said, "Andrea, will you marry me?" And I got down on my knee and I asked that. And without any hesitation this time, she said yes. And I slipped that ring onto her finger. And that ring was a symbol of my commitment to her, a very valuable, a very precious symbol of my commitment to her. And you know what she didn't ask at that moment? She didn't ask to see the case that the ring came in. She didn't ask, Marty, this ring is nice. Can I see the case also? That would have been absurd because that case didn't compare anything to that ring. That, that case didn't matter in light of how valuable and how priceless the ring was. In the same way, Jesus Christ is the most valuable, the most priceless thing God could have given to prove his love for us, to prove that he is for you. There is nothing else that can prove that. So we can be certain that we're secure in God because he's for us. And we know that that's true because he was willing to give the most precious, the most priceless thing that he could possibly give, the son of God. So the first argument, God is for us. The second argument, I would call a cosmic court case. The second argument comes from verses 33 through 34. 33 and 34 say, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, in this cosmic court case, we we all have a part. God is the judge. We see this in uh, that God is the one who justifies. God is the one who brings justice in this universe. He is the judge who declares justice in all cases. God is not only judge, but he's the plaintiff and the victim. We see in Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Our sin is always against God. All of our sin is against God so that he is the one who's bringing the charges against us. We are the defendant. We're the guilty party. We saw earlier in Romans that, that our, our sin condemns us to death, that the wages of our sin is death. So the sentence is death. But thankfully, we have a lawyer and an intercessor who is Jesus Christ. So what happens in this court case is we stand before God 
and he declares a sentence. He declares death. But at that moment that that sentence is given, Jesus Christ steps in front and says, I will pay that penalty for him. I will pay that penalty for Marty so that instead of him dying, I will die. And we read that right here. Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who raised. Some of you might have heard of a man named Jeremy Meeks. Uh, Jeremy Meeks has become an internet sensation over the last three weeks. Uh, It turns out he's become a sensation because uh, he has the most beautiful mugshot in the history of the world. Uh, He was arrested five weeks ago for gun charges, five accounts of gun charges. And uh, the police department that arrested him has, does this thing where they post mugshots on Facebook for some reason. And overnight, after his mugshot was posted, there were thousands upon thousands of women who liked his picture and began sharing it. And they all began to comment about how beautiful Jeremy Meeks is in the midst of his mugshot. Uh, It got to the point where they created a free Jeremy Meeks website where you can donate money to pay his legal fees. So I went on there and was reading some of the quotes. Uh, One said, Jeremy should try to get a modeling or acting contract. If I were an agent, I would contact him. Another said, Jeremy, you're a total babe praying that you get out soon. And she donated 10 bucks to him. It's gotten to the point where people have began to Photoshop him (laughs) on different advertisements to prove how great of a model he would be. This guy was arrested on five weapons charges, and this is what people want for him. Now, I don't know if he's guilty or innocent. I'm not a judge, and I can't declare that. But here's one thing that's going to happen. Jeremy is going to have his day in court, and he's going to stand before the judge. And if he is guilty, that judge is going to declare a sentence. And as many women that think he's beautiful and should be modeling, I can guarantee you that not a single one of those women are going to show up in court that day and say, Judge, Your Honor, this man is far too beautiful to be in prison. He should be a model or an actor. I will do his jail time. I will go to prison for him. He needs to be acting. That will not happen on that day. I guarantee it. But that's exactly what's happened for us in our court case. Jesus Christ has stepped in and said, I will intercede for this person. I will pay the price. And at that moment, God justifies you. He says, justice has been served for Marty because Jesus Christ has paid the penalty in full. And God will never revoke that declaration. He will never change his mind and decide, eh, never mind, Marty's still a sinner, the penalty's back. Once he has declared that, it is good. And he will never change his mind. But not only that, we see that Jesus Christ is constantly interceding for us. At the end of the verse, it says, Jesus, who indeed is interceding for us. He's constantly making intercession before God at the right hand of God. So this means that uh, every time that I sin, every time God is, Jesus is standing next to God saying, I died for that sin too. And then I sin again. And Jesus says, I paid the price for that sin as well. And I sin again. And he says, you know what? I died for that sin also. And he's going to be able to do that from now until I die. He is willing to intercede for every single one. And Jesus Christ is faithful. And his sacrifice is infinite. There will never be a time when I sin and Jesus says, not that sin. I'm done with that. There will never be a moment that Jesus says, eh, my sacrifice didn't pay that much of a price. 
Jesus is faithful and his sacrifice was infinite. And so we're eternally secure because Jesus is constantly at every moment interceding for you and for me. So our eternal security is proven by the fact that God has declared you just and he will not revoke that declaration. And it's proven in the fact that Jesus Christ is constantly, eternally interceding for you and for me. And the third argument comes from the last half of the passage, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We read starting in 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This passage can be separated into to two sections. The first looks at our circumstances. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sore. These are circumstances that the Romans who received this letter were facing every single day. They were dying because of their faith. They were hungry. They were losing their jobs because of their faith. Their family was being persecuted because of what they believed. And the possibility was arising that they would see the persecution coming. They would see the people dying and they would think, am I really a Christian? Am I still in the love of God if I'm facing this horrible thing? In the midst of darkness, in the midst of, of the pain, they might begin to think, God doesn't love me. But here Paul makes it very clear that in the midst of all of these things, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. That God has allowed us to share in the victory that Jesus Christ has won. And in sharing in that victory, everything else pales in comparison. The, the present sufferings are just small sufferings in comparison to the victory that Jesus Christ has won for us. And so God says, in the midst of your suffering, you are loved by me because you share in the victory that my son has won. Pain and sorrow, darkness, doesn't mean that we're separated from the love of God. It means that we share in Christ's victory. And a lot of you are feeling that way. A lot of you might be going through darkness in your family and pain in your family or in your relationships or in school. And in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that darkness, you should be reminded that you share in a victory that's greater than anything else you could ever experience. And that in sharing that, you become a conqueror. And you can know that God loves you, that he cares for you, that he desires you in the midst of your pain. The second half of the passage looks at all created things. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Death nor life, nothing on this side of the grave or the other side of the grave can separate you from the love of God. Nothing that happens in this life or in death can separate you. 
No angels, nor rulers, no spiritual beings can separate you from the love of God. They can't take away your salvation. Nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing that happens right now and nothing that happens at any point in the future can separate you from the love of Christ. This means that nothing you do now, nothing you do tomorrow, no decision that you make in a week will separate you from the love of God. This brings up an interesting question. If nothing that I do can, can affect my relationship with God, then why not do whatever I want? I want you to hear that that's not what I'm saying, that, that sin, that disobedience do affect your relationship, but they don't sever your relationship. Sin and disobedience cause you to have distance between God. They cause you um, to grieve the Lord. They cause you to, to step out of fellowship and intimacy and closeness with God. But they don't cause you to lose your relationship with him. We've all experienced this with our family, with our parents, right? Uh, at some point during your teenage years, I'm, I'm sure that you had a, a rebellious day or week or, or year where um, everything that you did seemed to upset your family, your parents, and, and you were constantly being grounded. You were constantly fighting and bickering and yelling, and, and they would ground you, and you would refuse to speak to them, and, and there was distance in your relationship. There was pain in your relationship. You lacked intimacy. You didn't want to go get ice cream with your parents. You didn't like them very much. But at no point in that fight, in no point in that rebellious phase were you no longer your parents' son or your parents' daughter. At no point was your status as their child in danger of being severed right? They might have been upset with you. There might have been distance. They might not have trusted you very much, but you were still their kid. And that's how it is with God. In the midst of our sin and our disobedience, it brings, it brings pain. It brings distance. It causes you to lack closeness and intimacy with the Lord. But at no point does it cause that relationship to sever. At no point will you lose your salvation with God because of your sin and your disobedience. So we go back to the passage. No powers, nor height, nor depth. Nothing in the realm of this creation can cause us to lose our salvation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then finally, the blanket statement that covers everything else. Nor anything else in all of creation. And guess what? Everything else in all creation includes you and includes me. You are created. Your thoughts, your desires, your decisions, they are all created in you. Nothing else in all the creation, including you, can separate you from God. If tomorrow you decide, I'm done with this church thing, I'm done with Christianity, I don't believe in God anymore. That is from you and you are a created being. And that, even that, won't separate you from the love of God. This is because at the moment you became a Christian, at the moment you trusted in Christ, God not only looked at all of the sins you had ever done, but he looked forward and he saw all the sins you would do. He saw when you would go too far. He saw when you would cheat. He saw when you might decide, I'm done with you, God. I don't believe anymore. He saw all of those decisions and he said, I forgive every single one of those. He's not surprised by your sin. This last week, I made uh, what is easily the biggest mistake I've made in my time here at Grace. Uh, 
Over the last six weeks, uh, our students, we've had uh, about 50 students overseas on summer projects. Uh, They've four different locations throughout the world doing missions, sharing the gospel with college students. And at the end of their six weeks, they have a four-day debrief. And during this debrief, it's a time where they reflect on what's gone on over the last six weeks. It's a time where they can see how God has been working. They can deal with conflict and they can begin to prepare to come back. And we always send college staff over to uh, help with the debrief, to lead it. So right now, Trey and Marcy Corey are over in Greece. And uh, Sarah and David DeSoso have been in Tradewinds. And Jacob and Susan Smith are sitting right here, though they should have been in East Asia. So Tuesday morning, uh, I got a phone call uh, about the time that they were supposed to be leaving on their flight uh, with Jacob, or Susan actually, asking, Marty, do we need a visa to get into East Asia? And my stomach sunk because I had blown it. Yes, you need a visa to get into East Asia. It is impossible to go there without a visa. Without a visa. And I had completely forgotten. I had booked their flights. We had paid for it. Susan had taken time off. Everything was prepared. And I had forgot the visas. We frantically spent the next five hours trying to get to the consulate in Houston, trying to get uh, expedited visas, and finally at the end of the day, we realized it's not happening. They're not going over. So thankfully, there were people in East Asia that could run the debrief, and everything's worked out fine. It's gone smoothly. They've had some time to spend together and relax some, hopefully, but I felt horrible right? Now, luckily, I haven't been fired for this um, yet. They might have been waiting for me to preach because they didn't have a backup, though I said Jacob could be the backup now that he's here. Um, But I'm still here. I haven't been fired, but if I forgot next year, it, it might look pretty bad, right? If I forgot this again, if I forgot it again after that, I would say they should fire me. I would fire myself if I forgot this three years in a row. But what if when they hired me up front, I said, hey, just let you know, I'm really forgetful, and every year in the spring, I'm going to forget to get the visas for them to go over to East Asia. I'm going to forget it every year from here until I'm out of this position. I just, I guarantee that. And they said, you know what, Marty? We value you so much to be in this position. We want you to be here so much that we're okay with that. We're okay with you costing us a bunch of money and, and causing chaos in the college ministry once a year for the next 10 years. And so... Great, all right. So then what happens? Every spring I show up and, uh uh-oh, I forgot it again. But what would they say? Marty, we're disappointed. We're a little annoyed that you keep forgetting it, but we still value you in this position so much that we're gonna keep you around. The next year it happens. We value you so much that we're gonna keep you around. And that's exactly what God has done. He says, I value you. I love you. I cherish you so much so much more than every sin that you've ever committed or that you ever will commit, that I'm willing to forgive it. I'm willing to keep you around, to keep this relationship with you strong. No matter what you do, no created thing can separate you from the love of God. He knows what you will do, and he's chosen to accept you. He's chosen to forgive you. He's chosen to redeem you and to make you his child. Our three arguments this morning, God is for us. The cosmic court case, God justifies you, and that's irrevocable. Christ is constantly interceding for you. And then finally, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So why does eternal security matter? What does this mean? 
Earlier I said that when I, when I uh, found out that Andrea liked me for a year, it changed everything. It changed the course of our relationship. And eternal security does just that with your relationship with God. Eternal security allows you, motivates us to serve God out of love, out of appreciation and a desire for intimacy, not out of obligation or fear. Eternal security allows us to say, God, you have blessed me, you love me, and so I want to bless others. So that instead of uh, serving out of obligation and a hope that it earns you salvation, we can say, I'll do this because you love me and because I love others. It allows us to, to have freedom, to, to really to sin. We don't want to sin, but now we have freedom. It doesn't mean that we lose our salvation every time we blow it, but we can come to God and we can say, Father, I'm sorry, forgive me. And he does every time because we are eternally secure. Eternal security gives us a freedom to be ourselves, to not have to perform in front of God. And this is vital This is vital to the health of your relationship with him. It's vital for you to be able to have intimacy with the God of our universe. So how do I want to apply this? First, if you don't buy what I'm saying, if you're confused by what I'm saying or or just are not sure about it, because this is pretty tough. uh, If you aren't sure about it, please come and talk to me. Please come and talk to someone on staff. I believe that this is so important that you need to know where you stand on it. You need to understand this. And there's far more arguments in the Bible that talk about eternal security. And so if you're unsure about this, please come afterwards and talk to me about it. But second, I want you to step out and serve. I want you to step out and serve because God has blessed you and because God holds you in his hand. And so I want you to bless others because he has blessed you. And I want you to do it not out of fear of what will happen if you don't. Right? Some of you, you might give out of fear of, of what that means in your relationship if you don't do that. Some of you serve in the nursery or join Bible studies out of fear of what happens if you don't do that. And I want you to know that God wants you to do it out of a love for him and a love for others. So I want you to step out and serve. A couple opportunities. We've been announcing this all summer, but youth and children's ministry need volunteers. They always need people across the street to serve in the nursery. Youth needs people to lead the youth groups. So if you're interested in that, you can go to Grace's website and go to serve and and look up the volunteer applications. But second, we have servant teams starting in the fall. We have these different teams that their focus is to serve our community, to serve the body here at Grace, and then to serve the college ministry specifically. So step out, and this summer when you're, or this fall, when you're signing up for Bible study, look into signing up for a servant team so that you can serve the body um, out of joy and excitement and appreciation for what God has done. I want to close this morning by just letting you know, I don't want you to leave here thinking, that was nice. I don't want you to leave here thinking, that was a good sermon, Marty. That, that was a fun topic. I want you to leave here knowing that this doctrine, that eternal security, is one of the most vital centerpieces to our faith. This is the difference, one of the big differences between us and Islam, between us and Judaism. The fact that if we blow it, it's not all over. If we mess up, if we sin, if we turn our back for a time, it's not, all is not lost, okay? Eternal security gives you a freedom to be able to be yourself before God, to not worry about performing. I want you to walk out of here worshiping a God who's for you, worshiping a God who has interceded 
for you, who has bought you with a price, who has given his valuable son for you. I want you to walk out of here knowing that absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of God. I want you to walk out worshiping him because of his greatness. Let's pray with me. Father, you have, you have redeemed us. You have brought us to you. And now, Lord, we can walk in the security and in the commitment of knowing that nothing we do can cause us to lose our salvation. Nothing can separate us from your love. Father, we are fallen. We are sinful and we are wicked. And if it were up to us, we would surely blow it. We would surely find a way to mess things up. But God, uh, you are in control and you are great and you are for us. And so we can walk in confidence. We can walk in commitment and security knowing that, that you love us and in the joy and in the life that that brings. We love you, God, and we praise you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.